God has been dealing with, with me in a very, very special way. And uh, I've got the responsibility to try to make it possible for you to understand something this morning that God wants for us, and I think it's something that we tend to overlook because of the world that's so heavy on all of us. The world that grabs us two steps out of this place and snatches us back into the, to the whirlwind and the race that's going on out there and distracts us from being still and remembering who God is. It takes a lot of self-control to keep us in the path that we need to be in. That song says we're prone to wander, and we are. And as my mama used to, sometimes she said I'd have to get down off my high horse, and she'd snatch me back into reality. Well, we need to be snatched back into reality. But I want to make you aware of something that God made me aware of this morning. I've got it on a little note that's added to my outline underneath the paper clip that I have in my page in the Bible. There is one characteristic of God that is so much like our sinful characteristic. Of course, it's not sinful with Him because He can't sin. But it says in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, For thou shalt worship no other gods, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now jealous is not to be usually considered a good thing to have. It usually gets us into trouble. But that's who God is. And God doesn't play around with this business of us having idols to worship. Now, there's an interesting thing about that. Everywhere in the New Testament that God mentions, mentions idol worship, He also brings up covetousness. They're together. Everywhere in the New Testament. Not in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Because there's not too many people today carving things or statues or anything else to worship that you could call an idol. But God's definition of an idol is anything that we put in our mind ahead of Him. Now Paul said in Romans, there's no such thing as an idol. And there's not. The things they worship ain't nothing but a rock. Even if it's been taken a chisel to and, and made a figure out of it. Like a Buddha or something like that. The problem is in our mind. We worship something that is not a God. But we make it a God. And I'll tell you this, I've had to learn that anything that we put between us and God and pay more attention to than we do him, makes him jealous. 
And if that's a shiny new truck or a shiny new car or a fancy new house or whatever it is, it might be a sport. It might be an activity of some time, of some kind that we place in front and push him aside in order to have time to do what we're going to do. And he does not take that lightly. Please understand that. If you've ever been around anybody who is jealous and some of the, 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 the links that they will go to, to to act out that jealousy, God's like that too. And it says it's a fearful thing in Hebrews to fall into the hands of an awesome God. You don't want to be caught in that situation because I've been caught there before. There were things in my life I wanted to be a little bit more than I wanted to be a godly man. And God dealt with it. And he doesn't deal with me as easy as I do. If you tell me I got a sin, I start trying to straighten it out. But I'm going to go easy on myself. God doesn't, never has. He says in the 11th chapter of Corinthians that if we would judge ourselves, he wouldn't have to judge us. So anything you can straighten out to bring in line with what God wants you to be, you can keep having to deal with him on it. Because I'm telling you, when he deals with you, it's not pretty. I have had people that I turned over to God that really mistreated me. Because he said in 2 Thessalonians and, and, and verse 6 that he considers it an obligation to bring tribulation on those who trouble his saints. It's the same, same thing in our families like, my daddy, if you mess with me, my daddy will get you. And our heavenly father will get you if you mess with me or you. And we can depend on that. That's a promise. And I'll tell you this. If I had taken out my vengeance on these people that mistreated me, it wouldn't have been near as bad as what God did to them. And there are times when I feel sorry for them and wish maybe they had to deal with me, it wouldn't have been as bad as having to deal with God. But those are the promises that God has for us if we'll just use them. So you don't want to spend more time with anything, give more attention than you give to God. He says in Scripture that, that where our, our heart is, that's where our treasure is. You can look at a person and tell where their treasure is, because, or where their heart is, because that's where they put the rest of themselves. They put more time and effort and, and, and thought and everything in their idolatry than they do God. And that's the way he treats it. And that's the way he doesn't respond to it very favorably. But there is something in all of this. The thing that is, I, I felt like might be hard to explain to you what it is. Is this thing called an abundant life. And God wants us to have it. We started out with the most important scripture. Is that you love your, the God with all your heart and mind and soul and love your neighbors yourself. That's what we've been preaching on for weeks now. 
but he wants us to have an abundant life. He says rejoice, and again I say rejoice. He wants us to be in a state of rejoicing. And there's a word or two today that I'm going to try to explain, and we'll look at the scripture that gets up to that part. But we learned last week in a small review form that an unsaved man cannot be educated to preach Jesus. Please understand that. I talk about going to these seminaries. I have known people who taught at a seminary that I could not hold my hand up and swear that they were even Christians. But if you think about it, what better move could Satan make than to put unsaved men that look like saved men in our preacher teaching schools. Those who preach for money will preach error. God says so in his word because the Holy Spirit is not going to tell them what truth is that they want them to share with you. They've got to preach it out of their own head and you can't get anywhere coming from anybody's head because we're all sinners. The Holy Spirit is really, in finality, is the teacher that we deal with. Whether we have a spiritual gift of teaching or not, we have to know, those of us who teach, that it is the Holy Spirit who causes you to believe what you have just heard or read. Now, I can, I can, I can make you aware of something, and I can read something to you, which is what I consider preaching to be. But I can't make you believe it. The Holy Spirit has to do that. The Bible teaches us also that every bit of business we do with heaven goes through the Holy Spirit. I can't talk to God without going through the Holy Spirit and Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes our prayers and our pleas to God to Jesus. He's the one that carries our prayers to Jesus. And then he brings back our answers, either to us or to the target of our prayer. We may not know till we hear that our prayer has been answered because it's dealing with somebody else we prayed for and that, that answer that they have has got to be told back to us that, hey, things have changed. They may not even know we're praying, but they know things have changed. And we don't get the answer. We don't know the answer until it comes back. But the Holy Spirit does all of that. And there's another thing that we need to understand. When Jesus walked this earth, there were things about God. Now he says that we, we studied it last week and the week before. The doctrine that I share with you is not mine, he said. It's not coming out of my head. It comes from the one who sent me, God. So Jesus was copying God word for word, thought for thought, 
meaning for meaning. But there were things that God knows then, and I assume he knows now, that Jesus doesn't know. So it comes to this. I pray and I ask God through the Holy Spirit to answer my prayer. The Holy Spirit takes it, carries it to Jesus. They converse in a language that we don't know and will never know. They talk about it. If Jesus knows the answer, he sends it back through the Holy Spirit as Anthony has taught us on Thursday night. But if Jesus doesn't know what the answer is and doesn't know what God's plan is, then he has to turn to God and ask him, what do you want me to tell the Holy Spirit to tell these people? And then God tells Jesus, Jesus tells the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit tells us. And then we've got a choice of whether or not to do what the Holy Spirit told us to do or not. That is a choice we have. And the outcome of our situation depends a great deal on what we choose to do. Do we choose to follow Christ, which is God, or do we choose to make the decision out of our head, which as a rule doesn't work very well. So in a minute I'm going to tell you what scripture, but I don't, want to, I don't want you looking for the scripture while I'm explaining this. Jesus talked a lot to those folks that walked the streets of that day in things that they understood. He, he made a lesson out of things that they did every day. And it's called parables. Now you can tell the difference between something that really happened and something that was a story that Jesus told just to make a point and to tell a story and to give a moral by the fact that when things really happened, it had people's names in them. Like the parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus. That's not a parable. That really happened. The rich man went to hell. And Lazarus went to Adam's bosom. And all that discourse that happened there that caused us to know what we know about hell, we learn from a story that, that Jesus told that really happened because it caused his name Lazarus. And the stories that Jesus made up, he wouldn't give people names. So we can tell by that whether or not a story is a parable or not a parable, whether it really happened. But there was a thing in the day of Jesus called a sheepfold. It was a rock wall, usually head high or higher, and it enclosed an area like a pen would. They stacked rocks like a lot of houses. We got a house down here before Mahan Creek on the right that's built out of rocks. But they would build a fence out of rocks up higher than your head with one door in it. One door. 
It was called a sheepfold. Now, the size of the pen had to do with how many people in that area had sheep. Because about sundown, the people that tended the sheep in the area and the pastures around these towns would come in with their sheep and put them in the sheepfold. And they'd stay in the sheepfold all night long, protected from thieves and predators, wild animals, and all that stuff. They had a man that stood at the gate called a porter. And sometimes the sheep herders took turns to be the porter to spend all night with the sheep. And sometimes they hired a guy. They would work with the sheep all day long and then they'd hire a guy to sit, sit up at night and watch him. He pulled a night shift. They would plant thorn bushes around the outside of this rock pen to where people couldn't climb over it. Because you could see how if you could climb over it in the pen, grab a sheep, knock him in the head, throw him over the fence, climb back over the fence, carry him off. So the most of the sheep folds, they put dried thorn bushes around them until the live ones could come up and grow up to where nobody could climb back into the sheepfold. The only way they could get in there was through that one door. That place that they put the sheep in at night, that sheepfold, was a place of security. It was the only place really that sheep could be guaranteed that they wouldn't be attacked at night by some type of predatory animal. They had lions in Jerusalem. They had bears in Jerusalem. Remember what David said? I killed a lion that came after my daddy's sheep and I killed a bear that came after my daddy's sheep. So they had both of those there. And then they had robbers and people that steal. And in John chapter 10, if you'll turn there, Jesus makes a lesson to the everyday people on the street about this thing called a sheepfold. And what he's doing is using this place of security where the sheep would not have to worry about being attacked by anything. A place of safety. He made this like heaven. To have a relationship with him would be like that sheep that is put in that sheepfold at night. Now let me tell you something about a sheep. Sheep are the scariest animals in the whole world. You know, in the 23rd Psalm, David said, Thou leadest me beside still waters. Did you know that a sheep will not drink out of a rushing stream of water? He's too scared of it. A shepherd would have to take a stick or a shovel and dig a little pool off to the side of a stream where the water would run out of where it was rushing, would run out of there and settle and be still in a little pool before a sheep would take a drink out. He's, he, they'll almost die of thirst before they'll drink out of rushing water because they're scared to death of it. Now that's how scaredy a sheep is. Now most of the animals we know, even domesticated animals, a bull has horns and a cow has a leg. Anybody that's ever milked a cow knows that you can get the bucket kicked over or you can get kicked over trying to milk a cow. 
They've got ways of defending themselves, but a sheep has no way to defend himself. All a sheep can do is run. And if you've ever seen a sheep stampede, they run all over the place. They run into things. They run into each other. The only way they had of protecting themselves is to run, and they got a, not a lick of sense about how they do it. So a sheep is utterly vulnerable to everything in his life. So they locked them up at night where nobody could get to them. A place of safety. In chapter 10 of John, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that enters not by the door unto the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. In other words, when the shepherds came to the sheepfold in the morning to claim their sheep, they came to the door, the porter recognized the shepherd, the shepherd stepped through the door, walked in there, the sheep knew his voice, they came to him, and he turned around and walked back out the door, and his sheep followed him. Now listen to me. We move animals by driving them as a rule. Everything else in the scripture about mules, oxen, everything is for somebody to give them orders from behind. Sheep are not that way. They follow somebody in front of them. And you listen to what the word says about that. It says that anybody that shows up at that sheepfold with all those sheep in there at night that doesn't show up at the door is a thief and a robber because the sheep doesn't know his voice. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherds, the people who the sheep know, they come through the door. To him the porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. Now Jesus is explaining this and most of these folks know pretty well about what's going on with it anyhow. He's not surprising them any with this. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth forth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now you see that story. He's talking about sheep and a shepherd. But what he's trying to show these people is not about sheep and not about shepherd. It's about them and about him. It's about Jesus and people. And the people here, the sheep he's talking about here are you and I, folks. They're like us. And when it gets down to it, the worst of the bunch of us don't have really much way to defend themselves. We can be overcome if a person thinks enough about it. It's done every day on the streets of the United States. This parable, verse 6, spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. They didn't understand his story. So he tells it another little way and changes a few things. 
Verse 7, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, truly, truly, he's saying, y'all need to listen to this now, he says, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. If you want to be hooked up with God, if you want to be part of the church that I'm preaching about, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be saved, if you want to be a member of the way, the truth, and the life, you got to come through me. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. And maybe you know, you've, I've told you several times, that there were about 200 messiahs that came at the time of Jesus. Don't, don't feel bad at these folks in the street because they, they really didn't grab onto Jesus to start with. Because the one thing that made them believe that Jesus actually came from God the Father was the fact that he could take the devil out of a man. That's the first person that ever lived that could overcome the devil in front of other people. That's the reason they believed that he might have come from God. They knew about the devil and they knew what all he did and they knew about demon possession and the whole thing. And Jesus was the first one that could outdo Satan when he decided to take somebody over. And that was the thing that impressed them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture or find stuff to eat. I'm going to put you in a safe place at night. I'm going to keep the, the, the thieves and robbers away from you. I'm going to keep the predatory animals away from you. And I'm going to find something for you to eat. I'll take you out to a place where the grass is not eaten down. Everything that we've been promised by Jesus in our relationship with God to a sheep, that's everything. Sheep, all he wants is water and some grass and a place to lay down in safety. That's all he wants. And he gets that through following a person called a shepherd, the one that looks after him and the one that's responsible for him. Probably this is going to turn into other sermons because there's no way I can get it all in one session. But he's talking about us, folks, for your safety, for your food, your pasture. Who do you look to? Do you look to anybody but Jesus? He's the one that has the responsibility of seeing to it that you have everything. Now, this whole equation cannot be honestly dealt with unless we put Satan in the middle of it because he's there. Verse 10, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, your adversary, the devil, it don't even show up unless there's going to be killing and stealing and destruction. That's what he's all about. If you see killing and stealing and destruction and unlawful behavior, it's because Satan's there. 
He can't come to a place and his demons can't come to a place without stirring up trouble. That's part of what they are. That's what they do. And they tempt us to do the same thing. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have light and that they might have it more abundantly. That word life and having it more abundantly is the thing that really gave me puzzle to whether or not I'd be able to describe to you what I believe God has told me about this. I've been telling you. The Bible says, Jesus says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And the question I want to ask you, we are living in a world that has tribulation in it. Jesus said we would. How much tribulation does your world have in it? What are you dealing with today? And what effect has it had on you? Do you live in fear? Do you live in anxiety? Do you live in worry? Are things going on around you that keep you uptight all the time? Please believe me. Jesus does not want you to live that way. He says it plainly right here. We've got health problems. How much trouble are they? Well, you know, when I was convinced I'm going to heaven, it's not as big as it was. No, it's not. But how concerned are you about what's wrong with you? How concerned are you about what you got and what you don't have? He plainly tells us in Matthew chapter 6, take no thought for what you shall eat or what you shall wear or where you shall live. That's three things that we think about all the time. And a way to travel, a car. And God says, through Jesus, who wrote this book, with the hands of the prophets and the apostles. I want you to have life and I want to have it more abundantly. Now let me tell you something. One of the words that we use for us being where we would like to be is happy. God uses the word peace and uses the word joy. God, in order for us to attract those people in our lives out here who do not know Jesus or don't know Jesus that well, are attracted by how happy we are about how much joy we have and how much peace we seem to be living in. There are so many words in the Bible dictionary that has to do with this word life. What does life mean? It doesn't mean just breathing. It doesn't mean just heart beating. Everybody's got that. He wants us to be different. And he says rejoice. And I say again, rejoice. Now I said a couple of weeks ago and I'm going to say it again. Those things in your life 
what take away your smile. Get away from them. We saw how Jesus said, you need to look at those things of beauty. You don't need to be looking on this junk. But we continuously go back to it. Proverbs tells us that. You can wash a hog and he's going to go right back in the mud puddle. And he says, that's what we do. I try to tell you, get away from things that make you sad and make other people glad they're not you. But you keep going back to it. Paul says, this one thing I do, I forget those things that are past. Doesn't matter about your family. It doesn't matter about your past. It doesn't matter what happened 20 years ago. That's yesterday's news. What about today? And today, if you can understand that I'm going to make the rest of my day a happy day, I want it to make it a day where everybody who runs into me is going to be like me. But how do you do it? I was talking with a lady a couple of weeks ago it was talking about helping people. I said, but when you get up in the morning and pray that you'll be able to help people all day, doesn't that put you in a lot of people that's having a lot of trouble? She said, yeah. I said, does it get to you? She said, well, yeah. I said, are you for sure that every single person that you're trying to help is somebody that God wants you to help? Or are you just out beating the bushes trying to find somebody that's in a jam? People in a jam make you feel like you're in a jam. And God says, get away from it. If you are going to create a situation in your lifestyle and with your face and with your smile and your gleam that comes off of you, there's some things you're just going to have to stay away from. Now, I'll ask you to do something but it's not going to take long. And it's not going to be something you're going to have to brood over for a month. God did not build us to take enough problems of yesterday and tomorrow and try to live through them today. Our shoulders are not that big. So what I'm trying to tell you, look for things that make you happy. It won't be things that make me happy. Look for things that make you happy and give you joy and give you peace. And if somebody that you love is in trouble, pray. That is the thing we're supposed to do. Sit down, get quiet, find your closet, your, your, your quiet place, and pray earnestly for those people. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman, and a righteous man or woman is a born-again man or woman. And if you're a Christian, it says your prayers make things happen. And we're like that sheep, whether we want to believe it or not. We don't have a lot of protection for ourselves down here. Let's face it, we're sick all the time. We're in debt. We get in trouble. We're standing on the street corner and get run over by a dump truck. I mean, you've heard it today. He didn't leave out the house that morning planning to get run over by a dump truck. But it happened. Let me ask you, 
Does a person meeting you on the street notice something in your face that makes them want to be like you? <laughs> what could it, you know, it, it, it said in the Bible that people could see that the apostles had been with Jesus. They could see it. Before they ever met them, before they got up and talked to them, before they, they could see them coming down the street and knew. I mean, they were whistling and humming and, 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 and bebopping down the street. They knew they were happy people before they even got to them. But uh, wait, wait a minute, young man. You know, I was brought up to be responsible. <laughs> yeah, well, God wants you to be happy. You can still be responsible and be happy. Well, you see, I got all this stuff wrong with me. Yeah, I do too. But you know what? I can take care of it with three or four shots, go to a cardiologist, and I can have a good day today. I really can. I've learned that. And that's what I'm sharing with you. There is no reason for you to have the mully good all day long. And Jesus doesn't want you to have that. And I'll try now to explain this word life and abundance. Abundance is in excess. Think of excess. Think of excess. Well, I really shouldn't be eating these two pieces of cake, but they gave me two, so I reckon they needed they wanted me to eat it. They didn't just give me one, they gave me two. God gives you two pieces of cake, or maybe three or four, and that's what he intends for you to eat. You see what I'm saying? The word abundantly that you might have life, the words that describe this life that he's talking about is words in our language like vigor and vitality. When you've got animals with vigor, you've got animals that are gaining weight and are happy and they're doing a good job and they're healthy. And the animal vigor, you can even have plant vigor. Some folks say, well, I ain't got a green thumb. I can't raise plants. Oh, yeah, you can. If they got vigor, they can grow and do well. That's this word. In the Spanish, they call it brio. Brio. It's life. And it's not just heart beating and breathing. It's life. It's anim animation. It's jumping around and clicking your heels and feeling good and dancing down the street and the whole deal. That's what it's all about. And God wants you to have it. And he wants you to have it so bad. He sent Jesus so you could have it. What does people happen, peaceful happiness mean to you? What would it mean for you if you saw yourself as a person who had peace and happiness? Well, you, you just don't understand, you know. I just heard yesterday that my friend over there did that. No, 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 no. Stop and say a prayer for him and go on about your business. And don't think you're trying to do God a favor 
when he didn't call you to do something. Folks, I was brought up in my churches all my life to think that I needed to be doing something good for God. And if I was going to be a good little boy and a good man, I was going to have to constantly be doing something for God. And then I ran into that word in Hebrews that talks about dead works. Works that I went out of my way to do, tried to help somebody. God didn't tell me to do it. God is not going to give me a reward for doing it, but I just thought that he'd be real smart if I did it so it would please God. Please let me remind you of something. We're not commanded to do good works except for those that God asks us to do. The whole thing about being what God wants us to be is to be obedient. It's all about doing what he tells us to do. Not doing what we think we ought to do. I have witnessed to people who didn't want no part of Jesus. And they threw it back in my face. And I got away from there and I said, Lord, I'm praying for him. Now, you see, I went out of my way to try to say something to him to make him aware of you so he could be like me and be saved, be born again, and have a good outlook for his life. He said, I didn't tell you to talk to him. (laughs) Do what? But talking to people about Jesus is a good thing. I didn't tell you to talk to him. Well, no wonder it flunked. So what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to do what Jesus tells me to do. That's the whole answer. If you're in a place he didn't tell you to be, you need to get away from her. If he's, you're in a place that he didn't ask you to deal with, you don't need to, if it's a bad place, you don't need to be there. There's special people now, like the, 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 the missionary to Bourbon Street. You remember him. A lot of people don't know he was from Centerville. But he used to witness to all those folks on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, and there's some bad folks down there. I won't even turn. I've been within six miles of Bourbon Street a half dozen times in my life going to horse show, and I didn't want no part of it. Because it's nasty and dirty and filthy and full of sin. And he lived there until he got caught up in it himself. And that's the problem. With being around all the dirty stuff, sometimes you wind up dirtying yourself. You take a clean stick, I've heard this said, and rub it in the mud, it gets dirty. We got to be careful that we stay clean ourselves and stay happy and inviting and peaceful and joyful and look like that we're living a life that God would call more abundantly. More than anybody else around us. Look around. Just how happy you got to be to be the happiest fellow in the group. You know what I'm saying? You know, I thought about it this morning. 
busying ourselves with stuff that God never asked us to do. Have you ever had a hunting dog that wasn't ever there when you wanted to go squirrel hunting because he's always out in the wood running hunting and something he said? That's not worth a quarter. You have to put him in a pen to keep him from hunting. So you'll be able to hunt with him. I think sometimes that Jesus thinks about that. Oh, he's all right. I've known even people who spent so much time in church, they let their families go. And their families suffered because their activities in the church were too much. God doesn't ask us to do that. He said, just listen to me. And when a job comes along that you're supposed to do, I'll let you know. I'll tell you. I honestly believe that the commission as you go to teach and, and preach to people about Jesus, as you go, that some of those people, the only job they might have in a life of Christianity is to witness to one people and get them born again for Jesus Christ. One person. That gives you a lot of time for leisure. Godly leisure, but leisure. I hope that I have expressed what Jesus was trying to say to us right there in a way that maybe you understand. Because if I constantly put my place around people who are not living a good life, and I say, you need Jesus, and then I keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. I'm liable to wind up as sad as they are. And that's not what Jesus intends. He intends that we might have a life of animation. A lively life. A life that is everything good in excess more than we need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this scripture this morning. So many of the things we hear is about, oh, I'm going to have to work and do this. Oh, I'm going to have to use self-control and not do this. So much of it is the do's and don'ts of a Christian life. And I thank you, Lord, for cutting through all of that and letting us know that whatever we do, if we live life like you want us to, that it will be an abundant life. And it will be exciting and happy and peaceful. No anxiety, no worry, no trouble. So much of the trouble in our life, Lord, is caused by what we think about trouble instead of what is reality about it. It's making problems bigger than they really are. So Lord, turn us around and teach us to look on your face and not get to mully grubs when we get around a problem. In Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen.